Parev, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast. My name is Nadeg Sefirian, and I am a PhD candidate at Virginia Tech's School of Public and International Affairs. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Alakananda Nag, who is a photographer, writer, and filmmaker based in Goa, India. Welcome, Alakananda. Thank you. Thank you, Narek. Such a pleasure to be here. Alakananda, you have recently published a book which will be of great interest to our listeners. Please tell us about it. Yes. Uh, so in 2021, February, um, I, I finally launched my 10-year uh, you know, labor of love, and it's called Armenians of Calcutta. It went through various, various iterations. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about my background. So mm-hmm. I am Bengali. I am born and brought up in Calcutta. And Calcutta, uh, some may know, some may not, but is a very, very multicultural city. Also, it used to be far more and was uh, the capital of British India for a long time. And uh, when I was growing up, you know, there was a lot of um, talk or or a lot of visibility of um, other communities like the Jews or the Chinese um, there are two Chinatowns actually in Calcutta. Oh yeah. Uh, or the Anglo-Indians. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Armenians were always, always out of the conversation. I never spoke. We we never spoke about Armenians. So interestingly, I went to school for Armenian, and um, we always sang our school song, Paul Chater, our benefactor. Mm-hmm. And many years later, while researching this. <laughs> I realized that Paul Chater was Armenian and was the benefactor of La Martinia and also considered the father of modern day Hong Kong, etc. Anyway, so, uh, so when I uh, decided to become a photographer, which was roughly a decade ago, um, I, I decided to actually uh, explore this aspect of Calcutta, which I knew very little about. And uh, I would say that um, the seed of interest was, you know, when I was in school, uh, you know, there would be rugby matches and the boys would play and we would hear that uh, the Armenian boys are coming and they are so handsome and we have to go and things like that. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, at a party and I'd see a very, very quiet just like you know in some corner drinking coca-cola and then quietly going away but it was never part of you know they were never part of conversation so you know it was it seemed very natural to me that I should find out and and off I went to the church I gave a letter I got permission and I didn't think anything like I didn't think how what's going to happen what's going to happen to the work, where it's going to be, I had no, no clue. And for the first maybe three years, I was very trigger happy. And I was just, just photographing everything because it was all very new to me. This was a completely different world in my own city, you know, mm-hmm. something I knew nothing about. These were people, you know, 
who were part of the same fabric, but I, I, I didn't know anything about them, their customs, their rituals, their language, uh, their spaces, everything was so different. However, mm-hmm. after about two and a half, three years of doing this, um, uh, photographing, having conversations with them, doing research, but not so much research as I did much later. But, uh, you know, I had a huge body of work. But I was actually uh, somewhere I was deeply uh, unhappy with the work. So I should also mention that after I started the work, um, I think I was telling you before uh, we started this conversation, is that I went to New York to do photography, right? So I was away for, for about a year and a half. Um, and when I, so I went, I went to study photojournalism. Mm-hmm. And when I came back, I realized um, that that's perhaps not for me. So I was myself doing a lot of exploratory work through this, um, through the uh, photography that I was doing. So it was a big revelation to me where my work was going. So all of that was happening. So it was a very confusing, uh, but in a nice way, confusing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, so then, and then, sorry. Meanwhile, I was curious. I was curious, meanwhile, what had been your, your professional activity and did that in some way draw you to the Armenians of Calcutta? Well, interestingly, actually, I don't think it did in the sense in, in, in terms of the subject matter, mm-hmm. but I see now, so I worked in film, I worked in uh, TV commercials and feature film in Mumbai, but I see now how working in film for so long really informs this work and the other work I do. So I feel there is a cinematic approach, you know, in terms of the architecture and the structure mm-hmm. of the work. So that is very, very interesting. But I don't think that was informing me uh, being curious about the community back then. All right. But what happened is that I, after photographing for about three years, I looked at the work and I had a huge body of work and I realized I was deeply, deeply dissatisfied. And mm-hmm. I showed it to people. I showed it to and you, know, you have a decent body of work. Why don't you do a book? And I said, oh, this is not what I experience when I'm with the people. You know, when I'm with the community, this is not what I experience. So, and then I realized that I was actually exoticizing mm-hmm. the community without realizing it. You know, in my own city, which was like, I was... I was quite shocked. I did not imagine. So it was really like an outside gaze. Uh, and I said, this, is, this cannot be the work. So I stayed away from the work for a good year. I did other things. I did other works. And then when I approached the work, so it's really interesting because I, the work was done and undone many times, as I can I'll quickly tell you, just because I wanted it to be represented in the right way. Right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so when I went, went back to it, this time my approach was conceptual because by then when I was doing far more research and understanding and what else can I have on the Armenian community, I kind of realized a gaping absence of everything. Obviously of people, but also of you know research material, of tangible things, of tactile things that one can find in order to research uh, and do something solid on a community. And so I went in other directions. So I started trying to find, you know, objects and materials. And I went into materials that they traded in, like shellac uh, mm-hmm. and indigo 
and you know the idea of pure blood for instance you know all of that and then i got a grant to do to make a dummy book from the india foundation for the arts and i made a dummy book i exhibited that work at the armenian club in queens mansion on park street in calcutta mm-hmm. and then that year it traveled four five other uh, you know but i realized that this dummy is more my voice than what the community uh, stands for and so i took another couple of years and i un- undid that work as well and then this book sort of came to be so that's kind so, of the journey that's that's a very interesting journey and it's something which many many researchers also identify with even if you have a sort of specific research plan a lot of things can pop up along the way and can offer other avenues of 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 engagement and i'm curious to hear about a little bit more technical details about how you engaged with the community you said that some 10 years ago you just approached the church in calcutta or was there someone who acted as an intermediary and how did you manage to get through to these individuals yes so uh, i have to say i was very lucky because for obvious reasons the church and the community is quite guarded mm-hmm. and they really want to preserve what they have and uh, when i went um they said okay you need to give a letter which i did and um i i got permission immediately but what i had to do was they said you know we can give you the permission but you have to obviously individually ask everybody so i would go to uh, the sunday service and i would meet people and i would ask them or i would go to the uh, the sarkashik polchita old people's home and i would meet with them and i would ask them sometimes i would just go and i would just chat because i was just interested um so i think the access sort of happened like that but i do have to say that um, you know every time there was a change in administration there was a problem of access mm-hmm. even though they would introduce me to the next administrator it was a problem because there was a trust issue for sure and i mm-hmm. respected that completely uh but i think it's only towards the end when they saw what i was doing uh with the work um and you know they kind of understood uh that my intentions were pure and it was coming from a place of absolute um you know that they could trust me um then yes so now i think it's okay but yes every uh, every time changed uh, hands the administration i did have a challenge that's for sure but the people themselves when i went to visit uh when i spent time with them were very very warm some of them i became great friends with till now um so yeah that was very beautiful yeah many sociologists anthropologists or maybe scholars of diaspora studies listening would would identify with with what you just said um tell us a bit more about what has finally ended up in the book yes so um when i was working on this version um so it was uh, so i worked on three main ideas that i wanted to work with as a thread through the book right so i worked with the idea of 
uh, people. I work with the idea of architecture because it is about building a city. And I worked with the idea of the blood, right? And, uh, and then through those, uh, there are obviously various sort of um, trajectories uh, that one takes. I want to just maybe read you a couple of things, if that's okay. Of course. From the book, very briefly. Um, yeah. So the book, uh, I should say, you know, um, posits a very interesting alternate history of Calcutta. Mm-hmm. Because uh, popular history considers Job Chanak, the British administrator, to be the founder of Calcutta. All right. So the cover of the book is actually a quote from a 1936 Bengal past and present journal written by a certain Hoja Israel Sarhad. Uh, and I'm just going to read that to you, actually, um, because... This is the tomb of Riza Bibe, the wife of the late charitable Sukhyas, who departed from this world to life eternal on the 26th day of Nakha in the year 15, i.e. on the 21st of July, 1630. And then the writer writes here. So this is an epitaph. Okay, and I will explain to you from where it is. What a world of questions is suggested by this newly found record. Why was the source of information never utilized before? Who was the charitable Sukhyas? And how did his family come to be living in Calcutta 60 years before the advent of the English? Was there already an Armenian settlement here? Are the Armenians, after all, the founders of the city? So when I was researching, I came across this in a Bengal past and present um, journal. And uh, it really kind of blew my mind and I shared it with the Armenian uh, school uh, at the ACPA and they were amazed uh, because uh, the Armenian church actually has this grave mm-hmm. and it is the first Christian grave of the city. Mm-hmm. And nobody knows who she was. Nobody knows who the charitable Sukhyas was. Uh, in fact, uh, I am sending a book to uh, a certain hike Sukhyas tomorrow in Calcutta, but uh, they say they don't even know if they were related to that particular charitable Sukhyas. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's kind of fragmented. Nobody knows, like, a lot of like, you know, um, gray areas. So we don't know. But the grave exists till today. Uh, the photograph is part of the book as well. So uh, this is a very, very, and, and it really sort of, you know, gives you, it kind of turns history on its head in a way. And it is a great starting point for a new conversation, really. Um, so that's uh, the thing. And then the book actually starts with a very beautiful quote from Mesrob Jacob Seth mm-hmm. and his iconic book, which is um, the Armenians in India from the earliest times to present day. And um, it starts with, uh, I quote, uh, they were merely birds of passage who came all the way from the land of Ararat of, big, of biblical fame to purchase the spices and the fine muslins for which ancient India was famous. <laughs> Yeah. So this kind of sets the tone for the book. And therefore, this particular quote, which I just said, who 
uh, could we consider the Armenians the founders of the city is something which is actually um, debossed on the cover. I don't think you can see mm -hmm. of the book, although the, the name is on the spine, but this question uh, makes it to the cover of the book. Very nice. And indeed, it's such a fascinating chapter of, if I may say, Armenian history and Indian history. Absolutely. And um, the, 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 the name Sukhyas lists among the, the many um, notable Armenian family names of India, like Arakel or um, Aratun. Chatur, Aratun and so on. So it's really, um, and the fact that you're bringing it into, as it were, the 21st century is certainly something that will be appreciated. Why don't you give the book a plug for a moment, Alaknanda? Where can one uh, find this book? So this is a self-published book, mm -hmm. right? And the book presently is available with me. And um, I, uh, it's also available with a bookstore in India. But uh, I have been, uh, people have been writing to me and I've been sending them uh, the book. So presently, that is the situation. But uh, I do plan to have it in some bookstores in the U.S., hopefully later in the year. Great. Well, we'll ask our listeners to look up your name and find your website online. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. I had, um, you, you, you published a piece on a website, scroll, scroll.in, a couple of weeks ago. And you mentioned a couple of very, very interesting things in that, um, in that brief presentation. Um, you, you, you touched upon it already, but you mentioned that in interacting with the Armenians of the city, you were getting to know a different Calcutta, one that oh. you didn't know about until then. So I'm, I'm, I would love to hear more about what your connection was with your, with your hometown, right? And, and how that hometown feeling changed for you as a result. So if I may indulge, I would like <laughs> to read two small pieces of how I also. So basically, the book really is um, my experience with the community. OK, so it's, it's a very straightforward book. And it's really uh, what I experienced, what I researched, uh, what our interactions were. Uh, and so my entry point after this um, uh, the grave of um, Riza Bibe. And then I kind of wanted to take the reader through the experience of finding the church. Mm -hmm. right. So I'm going to read two pieces. They're small. I'm not. So I became, I must mention, I became a writer or I consider myself a writer after this book. So I'm not into long narratives, but I, <laughs> I will read these short ones. All right. Okay. One of Calcutta's busiest neighborhoods a flourishing business district where traders small and large sell their wares. The numbers are in excess. They spill over on the sidewalk and the streets making walking difficult. Driving around these bursting narrow streets would be an impossibility. On foot, one discovers the wonders of variety. A shifting canvas as one moves on, albeit punctuated by stopping for price negotiations from tin street to color street to glass street and so on. Utterly chaotic, yet so very organized. Nothing is really out of place. Everything happens all at once, all the time. To say the noise is deafening would be belittling the continuous crescendo. I recommend taking a day, because once there, you can get lost and find almost anything and anything. It's perhaps no coincidence 
how there has been a rightful takeover by Calcutta's largest business community. Let's call them the inheritors of a business legacy because this place had another history at another time. The world's first merchants were here, Bara Bazaar or the Grand Bazaar. Mm-hmm. So that is one. And then it leads into another one. Sorry, just last indulgence. <laughs> um, the people tree was my landmark. After much meandering, I found it. It led into what seemed like plunging into a sea of people, shops, stalls, carts, bicycles, boxes, more people, and so many things. This is the color dye street. Shops untidily hemming both sides, too narrow, too busy for uninterrupted walking. This is also Armenian street. Nothing like what I had imagined. I walked through a formidable wooden door, easily 20 feet tall. At this door, the city mutated, and I stepped into what lay beyond. So you're taking the reader through a place that is familiar to you, but your experience of it has been transformed as a result of these interactions. Yes, very much so. And and really, it seemed, you know, when I first walked into that church, it really seemed like the city had mutated. And it was this oasis. And I cannot explain to you, if any of our listeners have ever been to Bara Bazaar, I mean, I cannot explain to you how frenetic <laughs> Calcutta is known to be frenetic. Bara Bazaar is like the king of frenetic. And this is there, in, you know, Calcutta's first church. And it's so utterly beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can attest to that. It's been a long time since I myself was there, but it certainly is. Um, it is like, like a bit of a magic portal, you know, if I may, yes. if yes. I may indulge. <laughs> um, <laughs> You, you you also mentioned in that piece a kind of urgency to document absence, to document the truth about migration and what gets left behind, who gets left behind. I was intrigued by this notion. Please, uh, please say more about that. So, like I said, you know, when I was done photographing in the first three years and I was deeply unhappy, And I said, no, there is more. And I went looking for more and I couldn't find anything actually. And that's when I was going into, you know, all these other materials that they traded in, et cetera. But when I was looking at, uh, so then I was looking at, you know, let's say the British library, you know, what more can I find? How can I know more about them? Who were here? What happened here? Uh, Or universities, um, you know, in the US, there there was a lot of information. Uh, but in the Calcutta libraries, there was very, very little. Mm-hmm. And there were some serendipitous moments, which I will come to after this, which were beautiful, actually. But I decided, and I left that as, um, I sort of used that as a discipline for myself in this work to work around the absence, you know, to not indulge myself and say, let me see what I can get, because this is the story of migration anywhere. So let's look at it. Let's, let's really, let's face it, right? A migration happened. They came mm-hmm. here, they were here for about, you know, 350, 350 years. They left. What, what is left behind? Who is left behind other people that you find in the book? Other people I met, uh, the people who are so, you know, attached to their glorious past, you know, oh, wonderful people. And, uh, and what gets left behind is, is this absence. It's, it's, it's almost tactile. Um, 
it's it's gaping you know and and when you walk down park street which is the sort of high street of calcutta like 90% of park street uh, was built uh, by the armenians um so which is why i was very very particular that i will work with things and people and whatever i can that i find in calcutta mm-hmm. and i don't want to go outside because i want to be, that's why i was every you know even though i live in goa but i was very particular uh, i would go to calcutta i don't know five times six times a year um and then um even the printing was done in calcutta mm-hmm. so i was very particular to do that uh as a discipline for myself and also to see you know the story of of migration head on mm-hmm. um a, a a final point that is always of personal interest to me but in general in armenian discourse questions about identity are quite prevalent and certainly this applies even more in the context of the armenian diaspora I wonder if you could share some thoughts about the identity of the Armenians of Calcutta. How would you say they describe themselves? So this is a really 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 interesting question. You know, this is a diaspora twice removed because most of the Calcutta Armenians came from either Baghdad or New Julfa or Rangoon. and very few maybe from yerevan uh, but mainly they were so they were diaspora twice removed most of them have not been to armenia most of them don't speak the language mm-hmm. some do but a lot of them don't but it is so telling how armenian they feel mm-hmm. and um so in the book uh, i featured um a brother and sister called they are the one of the last quote unquote pure armenian families of calcutta and uh mari and sako stephen or stepanian and uh you know they so mari actually she when she retired she went to um armenia for a holiday and uh, she came back and we met we every time i'm in calcutta we meet we go out um and she was so happy and she was telling me all the stories uh this was the first time that she'd went she went mm-hmm. uh, she speaks uh, armenian though um and she said you know i everything felt so familiar i just didn't feel like coming back and i said so why did you you should have you know she said no but this is home mm-hmm. so you know i think there is this whole push and pull constantly um that i think i have felt with mostly all of them because they know that they are so armenian they are so in the community but calcutta is home they're indian you know by birth in a sense yeah would you would you think that they consider themselves indian or is their connection more with calcutta as a space calcutta for sure Mm. definitely definitely yes because i do wonder about that myself you know india is such a vast and diverse country so accommodating diverse identities at on the surface should not be 
um, too problematic. But at the same time, there's there's different sociocultural yes. dynamics in Indian society. And being Armenian is not such a you know a normal thing. It's a, it's become a rare yeah. thing, as you yourself have documented. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. very much so. Wonderful, Alaknanda. Thank you very much. This is a book ten years in the making. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, to be fair, the book is not ten years in the making. The work surely is, because when I started, honestly, I wasn't particularly sure why I was doing it. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Um, and the idea, the absence actually made me realize that it needs to be a book because I need to have something tactile, which will last for a very long time so that there is something. And actually, uh, as a next thing, uh, I don't know whenever that is, but I do want to create uh, an archive and a permanent exhibition for the book so that, you know, whoever wants to could just reference it. But I don't know, it's a long, long term plan. That would be most welcome. Well, unless there's uh, other lines of thinking you want to add. Let me just see. I made some things if Unfa had covered. Um, yeah, I think one thing I want to say, a uh, couple of things about the history and how glorious it was. Uh, and the book actually covers some very interesting uh, things like that. <clears throat> so, for instance, one day while rummaging through the uh, ACPA, which is the Armenian College and Philanthropic Academy, which is the Armenian school library. I found this book and I went and showed it uh, to uh, the office and everybody was so excited because nobody knew this book was there. And I just happened to chance upon it. I want to show it to you. Um, it's this book. Okay. So it's basically... Um, it was the Armenian College Old Boys Union souvenir, and it was the Golden Jubilee, okay? Mm. So 1909 to 1959. And it had all the details of all these old boys and where they were, etc. It was so beautiful because, you know, in this whole absence, if you find something like this was amazing. And then the book actually features now 60 of them with their names and their roll numbers. Some have roll numbers missing. So that was um, amazing to find. And then uh, another great character in the early 20th century was Gohar Jan. Mm -hmm. She is very famous in India. And uh, she was a Hindustani classical singer. And uh, she was also a, a courtesan in the court of exiled King Wajid Ali Shah in Calcutta. And uh, she was uh, Armenian origin, actually. Uh, so they, they say, so they say, yes, I no, have no, heard no, that as well. Yeah, yeah, but they converted to Islam, she and her mother. And because they had to make a living and they had some, you know, reasons to do that. But she was also the first uh, person in India to record on a 78 RPM record. I found that record, photographed it. That's part of the book. So I found like some very, very interesting things to put in the book and another um Last one uh, is Gurgin Khan. Okay, Gurgin mm -hmm. Khan. Have you heard of him? Sure, sure. Oh, yeah, fantastic. So Gurgin Khan, I mean, he could have been the Nawab of Bengal had he not been assassinated. So, you know, there are just such interesting uh, anecdotes uh, to the history of, uh, of the Armenians. So, yeah, now the book, I think after its launch is now living a really interesting afterlife 
such interesting stories are coming. People are writing to me from all over uh, about their history. So yeah, it's it's wonderful. I can imagine, and I can imagine this will be um, a welcome work by descendants of Calcutta Armenians, people who have ended up in other parts of of the Commonwealth, Australia, Canada, UK, also US. And um, I think um, it is something that is going to be really appreciated, bringing the Calcutta Armenian story up to the 21st century. So thank you very much, Alaknanda. This has been a very, very interesting look into your work. Uh, I hope we get to see more and hear more. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners. This has been another episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast.